Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today on the beginning of season three. We're excited to be diving in. We're excited for this new season. We're excited for a lot of the topics we're going to be covering. There are a lot of hot topics that are sensitive subjects to dive into and tackle, but we want to do that because these are the things that people are talking through and having to think through. And so even today, we're tackling one of those and we're going to be looking at women in ministry. And this is a very sensitive and hot topic. And so we want to do that and do that with grace and truth and do it well. And we hope to do in such a way that you are equipped to know how to navigate these subjects as they come up in your life. You're listening to Saints in Society, where we aim to equip saints to live in and engage with their society. We pray that through discussion and reading the word, we can engage culture in its terms, but not on them. The gospel speaks to all of life and provides all the answers we seek. So let's apply the gospel to our lives living as saints in society. Hey everyone, welcome back to Saints in Society. It has been a while since uh, we've recorded a podcast. We took an extended break over the summer, but I know Rick and I are really excited to start doing this again and recording this podcast. I spoke for you. Are you excited? I am excited. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we really love doing this and uh, it was nice to get a little bit of a break, but we're excited to work through some of the topics we have on the schedule for this season. Usually we do some kind of silly icebreaker, get to know you question. And this season we thought it'd be fun to try something a little bit different as our opener. Uh, We believe that all followers of Jesus are disciples, which means we're learners and we should be constantly learning from God's word and what he's revealed to us in the scriptures. But we should also be learning from our culture and not necessarily looking to our culture for truth, but looking to our culture to see what kind of messages or what kind of false truths it is putting forward. And being aware of the kind of messaging that is taking place around us, whether that be in advertisements from businesses, whether that be in movies or stories. Um, So there's kind of two sides to this. One, we want to identify where the culture is uh, saying things wrong about what is truth, proposing that you might need something or be satisfied with something that will not satisfy you. But then we also want to recognize that we live in a world that's created by God, that is inhabited by people made in the image of God. And so oftentimes what we see in our culture are redemptive things that in some way point to the gospel story, uh, maybe if it's not even intended to. And so one of the things that we like to do in some of our leadership cohorts Uh, and just at staff meetings and things like that from time to time is maybe pick a recent movie that we've watched, a book that we've read and try to identify how it could, uh, how we could speak the gospel or or see see gospel themes in that movie. So do you have anything else to say about it in introductory wise before I make you tell us the gospel from a movie you've watched recently? What I would say is you address two things. One, we want to identify where culture is telling us to place our hope. Yeah. Two, we want to identify the way that we can see people created in the image of God and and also God being the greatest storyteller of all time. There, there's a reason why we're drawn to good movies and mm-hmm. good books because we're created in the image of the greatest storyteller of all time and we're pulled into story and we see the redemptive story and so many other stories in Hollywood and stuff like that. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think because we're created in the image of the greatest storyteller, we're drawn to it. And so, yeah. That's good. Yeah. What movie do you see a clear picture of the gospel in? Oh, there's a lot. I'm, I was trying to think of one I've seen recently. I haven't watched a lot of movies recently, but the one that came to mind, and I'm like working it out in my head as I go right now, is the one we watched together recently, uh, Barbie. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't watch that yeah. together. Uh, we watched the movie from by Guy Ritchie. Shoot, what was it called? Oh, The Covenant. 
The Covenant. Yeah, the Covenant, yeah. 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 With Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, a really good movie. I liked it. Took a while to get going, but it was yeah. enjoyable. So the I'll try not to give any spoilers, but the plot of the movie is that uh, they're in Afghanistan, and Jake Gyllenhaal's character is a commander or a captain. I can't remember his exact position, but some a leader of a group of soldiers that are uh, going around trying to find weapons uh, in Afghanistan, and they have an interpreter, a translator from the local culture who is with them. Their platoon gets ambushed. They all die except for him and the translator, and the translator ends up saving his life uh, and doesn't have to. He knows that by him, the the translator, by him rescuing this American soldier, saving his life, which the the effort, the amount of effort and time it took for him to save his life is incredible, and this and the movie portrays that really well. Uh, that ends up putting him on the hit list of the Taliban, and he has to go on the run from that uh, because of the actions that he took to save this man's life, who he didn't have to. So I think in that way we can see the message of the gospel, and that Jesus, the the work and effort it went that he had to go through was it was laborious, it was painful. Uh, and it cost him his own life in order to save us who we we don't deserve that salvation. We haven't done anything to earn that salvation. And then the, the second half of the movie is then Jake Gyllenhaal's character, uh, I should know his name, but him kind of being eaten up by this guilt that he needs to go back and rescue the man who saved him. And so where I think then we have a, a similar but different uh, kind of theme from the gospel is those of us who have been saved, we do now have a, we are covenantally bound to our savior, um, but not in a way where we have to serve him out of fear or guilt or shame or anything like that, but we serve him out of love and appreciation of what he's done for us. And so, you know, the the rest of the movie is about him going back into Afghanistan to to try to rescue the the man who saved his life. And the rest of our life, having been saved by Jesus, is about serving him as mm-hmm. Lord and, and living living life in a way that is is done in response to what he's first done for us. Good. This is a good movie too. It was a good movie. Yeah, yeah. I'd recommend. What about you? What kids movie have you watched recently with your I kids? Know. That- <laughs> What's funny is you say that is the two movies that came to mind that I was going to speak to. One, I quoted so much that I just felt like I should. I, I think I've quoted on here is Last Samurai. Oh, yeah. Uh, it more so is a picture of what grace looks like mm-hmm. lived out. But the other one's Lion King. Mm. I feel it's got the creation, the fall, redemption, restoration yeah. pieces of the gospel. But I'll, I'll do Last Samurai. Okay. Since, since it's one of my top five favorite movies of all time, the reason why it's a picture of what grace looks like and the way that grace has the power to transform a heart is there's this guy whose name is Captain Algren. He's played by Tom Cruise, and he's a drunkard. And he goes into war against the samurais, led by Katsumoto, who is the leader of the samurais. And he ends up killing one of the samurais. Well, they keep him alive, bring him back to the village. And then he's taken care of by this woman. And she sees him through his time when he is uh, sobering up, uh, cleans up after him, feeds him, takes care of him and all the stuff. And then he asks Katsumoto, he goes, who is the woman? He was frustrated that it's taking care of me. And then he finds out in that moment that she is the wife of the man he killed in war. And then he was just you could tell just like baffled and mind blown, but it changed from that on. The next time he goes in the house, you see him, he takes off his shoes. Like like his whole attitude changed because here's this woman who had had her husband killed by this man. And then now she is taking care of him. And so it's like, man, 
giving love to someone who doesn't deserve it, and then seeing the way that transforms someone's heart and life is a picture of the way God gives us grace that we don't deserve, gives us uh, a restored relationship back to him through a son we don't deserve, and then the way that transforms yeah. the heart and stuff. So nice. they could have belittled him. They could have called him a drunk. They could have told him to get his life together, get his act together, and laid out a whole list of stuff to do. Could have killed him on the spot. Could have killed him on the Would spot. Would a short movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they served him, and his heart became, or, or his heart was changed through that mm -hmm. act of service. So, That's yeah. good. Awesome. There you go. Add those two to your, your watch list. We mm -hmm. started The Last Samurai. Uh, hunting. Hunting, yeah. yeah. We made it like 10 minutes into it. I can't figure out why we never kill an elk. <laughs> we watch a lot of good movies. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, for our first episode of season three of Saints in Society, we're going to tackle, would you say it's a touchy subject? Complicated yeah. subject? I, yeah. I would say it's it's probably one of the most touchy subjects in the evangelical world today. Yeah, I would agree. And... Uh, You've, we, maybe we've said this on here before. You've said it often. This this thing we're going to talk about today is the number one reason people have left our church. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what we're going to talk about is uh, women in ministry. Specifically, uh, we'll kind of answer the question, can women be pastors? This is a very long conversation that has a lot of nuances to it. And so we don't have time to necessarily get into all of those. But what we're going to try to do is give an overview of kind of the two main camps on this issue kind of the two main positions. We'll dive into our position and kind of, I guess, defend that from scripture or argue for that from scripture. And then we'll give some kind of pastoral remarks at the end of some implications of this. And yeah, just different thoughts that we've had about this. Um, it's something we think about a lot because it's a question we get a lot and it's something that mm -hmm. is very prevalent in our culture. So do you have anything no. by way of introduction you want to? By way of introduction, I think it, it would be helpful to define some terms. Sure. Yep. And so why don't we start there? Because I'm sure our listeners, some of them have an understanding of these terms and some of them might be completely unfamiliar with these terms. Yep. But even if they're unfamiliar with the terms, my guess is that they understand at least what the terms represent, Sure. even if they don't know yep. the terms themselves. So. Yep. Why don't you define some of the terms that are used for this argument inside yeah. of the church today? Yeah, so I'll just, I'll talk about two. Uh, the two terms are complementarianism and egalitarianism. Um, we'll start with egalitarianism. The egalitarian position on this issue is that men and women are created equally. They have equal worth, value, and dignity. And there's equality among roles that they can hold in the home, the church, um, and in marriage. So the egalitarian position, men and women are equal in all areas and there is no distinction in roles. The complementarian position is that men and women are both created in the image of God, equal in worth, dignity, value, yet they have distinct complementary roles within the home, marriage, and the church. So the, the key distinction here between these two positions and these two terms is the distinction of roles and and we'll, we're not gonna oh we might talk a little bit about marriage and the home but our kind of primary task here is roles within the church but they they overlap right mm -hmm. and so egalitarian no distinction in roles available to men and women in the church complementarian there is a distinction in roles within the church and men and women are created in a way that they are the same but different and mm -hmm. different in complementary ways yeah even you using the word roles is a very sensitive subject. Sure. It seems like if we said men and women are creative, are, are, are created equal, but they serve in different capacities. They serve in different ways. Mm -hmm. 
I almost wonder if if that's a better way to frame it because yeah. we we get so caught up in roles and and then it's more about a a position and title more than all of us are called to be servants. Mm-hmm. All of us are called to serve. And so there's different ways that men serve and there's different ways that women serve. Yeah. Both in the context of the local church and inside of the home. Yeah. I'm I'm not saying we get rid of roles, but it seems that that's like a even a touchy word. Sure. In in this and part of that might depend on, so, and this is the weeds that we said we wouldn't get into and we won't get into too deep, but there's variations of each position, right? So in the complementarian side, there is a male elder complementarian, which would say that the office of elder is reserved for men and everything else is on the table for women to, to participate in, lead in, serve and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And then there's like a male leader complementarian, which is a little more extreme version of it, which is not just that the office of elder is limited to men, but that any kind of leadership position or capacity or role in the church is limited to men. And some would even go so far as to say even leaders in society, but that's like a Mm -hmm. pretty extreme (laughs) version that we wouldn't ascribe to. So yeah, but yeah, maybe serving in different capacities, serving in different ways is a better way of saying that. So that's kind of the overview, the egalitarian position, the complementarian position, some churches have labeled these things differently. We don't think that that has been super helpful. These are kind of the traditional terms, and I think they communicate best what each um, what each position holds to. So, let me ask this. Yeah. So you've given us clarity on these two stances: the complementarian yeah. stance and the egalitarian stance. You just said that there's some churches that would hold to these terms, and some that would reject them. Mm-hmm. Defend complementarianism scripturally. Because oftentimes what it's what can happen is the egalitarian can spend more time trying to bash all the things about complementarianism, mm-hmm. why it's not good, why it's not loving, and all of these things. And sometimes those are purely emotional arguments, and mm-hmm. sometimes those are purely cultural arguments. And yeah. so if we're going to build a solid framework and say that, hey, the reason why we hold this is because we want to be biblically faithful, mm-hmm. which means we need to be able to define it biblically. Right. And so h- how do we defend a position like complementarianism biblically? Yeah, sure. And maybe we should say this, our, the position of our church is complementarian. Yeah. I don't know if we said that explicitly. So yeah, we're going to defend our position as a church. Let me ask you a touchy question. Oh, okay. Right as you go on to defend complementarianism mm-hmm. biblically. Okay. That's what we need to do with anything. Mm-hmm. Same thing. If the egalitarian is going to defend their position and say they're doing it biblically, then they need, they need to do it biblically. Right. Do you think egalitarianism is unbiblical? <laughs> uh, well, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think. I think. Uh, let me now exp- qualify my answer. I, I. I believe that Scripture is clear on this issue, and that Scripture cl- cl- clearly communicates that the role of the elder within the church, elder overseer, and I would lump pastor into that, is reserved for qualified gifted called men and so because i think scripture is clear on that and that's what the bible teaches a position that would say otherwise i'm going to say well that's i don't think that's what the bible says so therefore i would say that's unbiblical we have friends and know people and scholars and theologians who would hold to a different position on this and i would say i think they're wrong Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but i would say that about some other things you know like we've talked about reform theology there's guys that we know who would not consider themselves reformed. I think their position is unbiblical because I don't think that's what the Bible teaches, right? Yeah. Um, so, 
Uh, we can get in maybe a little bit later to a little bit more about my thoughts on that and the dangers of egalitarianism. All right, all right. Um, if you I, want to, I derailed us. No, so, that's okay. So, so let's I go. I want to know your answer. I do think it's unbiblical. Okay. All right. Phew. Yeah, yeah. So, and the reality is, in some ways, I shouldn't be leading a church with a conviction of this in this area right. unless I held that the way that we're leading the church is biblical yeah. and it's biblically founded. Yeah. And so just to be like kind of squishy on sure. this doesn't seem like a way that we can faithfully lead our churches biblically. Yeah. Does Ab that make sense? Absolutely. And that's okay. what I was trying to get at. And maybe I was just being too fearful, but we separate theological issues in categories of to die for, divide, mm -hmm. debate, and decide. So die for core doctrines of the Christian faith, uh, Trinity, salvation by grace alone, the faith alone, and Christ alone. Divide is like things that would that have separated denominations over the years. Baptism, right? Mm -hmm. Believer's baptism versus infant baptism. You know, that's going to divide churches. Doesn't mean that one church is Christian and one is not. They just have a different view on things. Uh, debate are things that should not separate or divide churches, but we can have discussions and, you know, end times, those kinds of things. And then decide is like, are we going to do pews or chairs kind of mm -hmm. things? Like decide, move on, let's not you know, where would you put this issue? I would put this issue on somewhere between debate and divide. Okay. And, and I, I think that, that it's moving closer in my mind to a divide area. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because I don't know that you can be a faithful member of a church that is complementarian and be egalitarian. Right. It, it just seems like you're really going to struggle there. And so in that case, we can divide, we can say that, hey, I still believe that you are a Christian. I still believe that, that you love God and love the church. I just think it's probably going to make the most sense mm -hmm. for you to not worship at this church, especially if you are going to struggle with the sure. way that this church is governed and led. It just doesn't seem like it makes yeah. a lot of sense for me. Yeah, and so. I would agree. I would say the issue itself is probably in the divide category for me because of what you just said, the hermeneutic that gets to that issue is inching towards the die for. Yeah. But we'll we should go there later. later. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So complementarianism, there's a lot of things we could talk about. We're going to try to limit this to maybe a couple key passages. Let's just start where the Bible starts with creation. Right from the get go, we see God create mankind to be similar, but different. So in Genesis one, we get the creation account says this. So God created man or mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God is creating mankind. There is a unity in mankind and that the, the human species, you know, the human creature that God is creating is very similar. And yet he created them male and female. So there's a distinction mm -hmm. between the male and the female. Uh, and then in Genesis 2, we kind of get a zoom in on this creation uh, where God forms the man from the dust of the ground, breathes life into his nostrils, puts him in the Garden of Eden and gives him the task of naming, which is an authoritative uh, task that he's been given to name the animals in, the, uh, in, in God's creation. And then God notices that it is not good uh, that he is alone. And so he wants to make a helper fit for him. And here... We have God create woman and different than God creating man from the dust of the ground. He actually uses part of man, part of Adam, pulls from his side and then creates woman as a an equal but different counterpart mm -hmm. to man. 
Can I pause you and just ask a question there? Yeah, sure. Do you think culture values the differences between men and women and sees them as good and unique and different? Or do you think part of the problem is that culture no longer celebrates the differences between yeah. male and female? Oh, I, uh, to answer your question, I do not think culture sees. Well, c- celebrates maybe is, is. Yeah, I don't think culture celebrates the difference between male and female. And, and that's okay. Like Western culture, right? You might, uh, the culture that we're all most familiar with. And that's pretty, uh, I would say obvious and evident in, uh, we talked about the feminist movement or even things like transgenderism and the, the supposed ability to move back and forth between genders because there's there's no clear distinctions between i mean people say things like you know women can have male genitalia and vice versa men can have so so, so there's this breakdown of distinctions physically like biologically but then also a breakdown of roles a breakdown of um yeah differences that you can't say things like you throw like a girl, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, there's we're not supposed to acknowledge any kind of difference or distinction between male and female, uh, but rather say that there's inequality in all things among yeah. those things. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and maybe where I'm going next will bring some clarity. Because to say that there is no differences is absolutely just goes against common sense. I mean, go to a playground. You know, there's yeah. a ball, there's a bunch of boys gathered around and they're like, what do we do with the ball? They're like, I know, I know one dude holds it and the rest of us try to smear him, you yeah. know, uh, like, <laughs> let's just kill the dude with the ball. Like yeah. you, you walk over the girl section and they're not like, Hey, there's a ball here. You know what we should do? One of us should grab it and we mm-hmm. should all try Like they are playing home. They are playing games. I'm not saying that certain girls aren't playing catch or doing stuff like that, but generally speaking, yeah. broadly speaking, like they're not sitting around going, hey, how do we find a ball and smear everyone sure. with the ball? Uh, it makes you think of Nate Bergazzi's bit, uh, comedian. Yes. He talks to me. He's yeah. like, you know how I know the difference between boys and girls? It's like, I have a girl. She's the sweetest little princess ever. My friend has a boy, and when he drops him off for us to watch him, I swear he drops off a bobcat. <laughs> he's like, yeah. he's under the deck chewing on wires, and he's like, yeah. that's he how I know t- there's a difference. Yeah. <laughs> I think he goes on to say that he and that friend like trade time, you know, mm-hmm. and he goes, it's just not an equal trade. No. My girl yeah. for your boy is <laughs> yeah. not equal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. There, there's differences. There are. The reason I was even getting into that is I was wondering what we can do even as Christians to help celebrate the differences mm-hmm. between. So in the home, how do we as men and fathers talk about wives and our, our wives and the distinct differences in the way that God yeah. has created us and even celebrate those things? Mm-hmm. Uh, and from the church, from the pulpit, how do I highlight certain characteristics yes. about women and say, hey, this is distinctly different and celebrate those things? So, right. so also... Instead of us just saying, hey, we think that's a problem correctively, how are we a part of Mm -hmm. helping the problem? And maybe it's a shift even in our language because so much of culture can be like, hey, here's how we bag on women. They're they're naggers. Here's how we bag on men. They're lazy couch cushions that are watching Mm -hmm. sports. Instead of saying like, what are some of the cool, unique differences about men and women? And how do we see it lived out in our home? How do we see it lived out in other homes and stuff like that? So even shifting in how we're even highlighting those things because totally. Yeah. Yeah. Different doesn't mean inferior. Yeah. And so highlighting and celebrating differences in a way that brings honor and dignity to the distinctions between men and women. I think that's really important. Were you asking me practically how to do that or just saying in general? Yeah. So so, yeah. And maybe more of a rhetorical question, but 
even my wife recently was talking to our kids and, and our kids said, and my wife has done a good job even with the shift, but our, our kids say, you know, like mommy does a good job, like taking care of us and mm. dad's fun. Well, <laughs> like initially they just kind of pissed her off, you yeah. know, but then she went on to say like, Hey, th there's some characteristics of like, this is a unique thing about mm -hmm. you and maybe about some dads and about moms and stuff. So instead of like resenting those things, like learning how to like celebrate those things. Sure. So, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So back to the creation account, you have Adam created out of the ground. You have woman creative out of created out of Adam. You have this statement of Adam in Genesis two twenty three. This is this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So there's similarity. You know, he looked at all the animals and none of them were like him. Now he looks at woman. She's like him. But then she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So so he answered my question. He's celebrating right there. Yeah, he, he yeah. is. He's yeah. he's saying similarities equal in value dignity, worth, yet different, mm -hmm. distinct. And, and part of that's obviously physical as he's looking at Eve and she is not like him. But then I think we see in, in the order of creation that it's not just a physical or biological difference, but a difference in a lot of things, mm -hmm. a lot of distinctions that, um, that, are, that should be celebrated, like you said. Then we get to the fall. And the fall is where things go haywire. And uh, I'm going to give credit to Greg Gilbert. So we'll have some resources. I'm sure we always try to post those. This is one that I would highly recommend. It's a very short book. Call and, that a toilet read. Yeah, toilet read. Yeah. If you're anything like you and I that sit on the toilet for 20 minutes. Yeah, it's it's a... Uh, it's 49 pages, so that's half a toilet sit. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a very good, very good book. Uh, Greg Gilbert, um, it's called Can Women Be Pastors? It's very short, and it kind of his argument is what has been really helpful for me, and I'll try to explain that, but then I would recommend you reading it. There's, there's an authority given in creation through, and you see that through naming. So God names Adam. He tells Adam to name all the creatures, and then Adam gives a name to woman, to Eve. In the fall, there is a reversal of these things. The other thing, I feel like there's so many caveats here. Authority is not a bad thing. No. There's bad authority, but authority in and of itself is not a bad thing. And so when we talk, start talking about authority, I think people probably tense up and it's like, like you know, authority is bad, submission is bad. All this, it's like good, biblical, like godly authority and submission is not a bad thing. In fact, we, we see in the Trinity itself an equality in value, an equality in worth, an equality in worthiness of worship. Father and Son and Spirit are all God, worthy to be worshipped, equality, and yet a distinction in roles in how each operates in working out salvation, in the Son's submission to the Father, in the Spirit's help of the believer. You know, like the, there's, there's this distinction in roles that doesn't change that doesn't change their value as God. And so if we're made in God's image, we can expect something similar, right? Yeah. So uh, this naming authority, God names Adam, who names Eve and the animals. In the fall, we see a reversal of this. We see an animal. And in fact, the lowest of the animals, a serpent, approach Eve and deceive her with actually these authorities in your life. They don't know what they're talking mm -hmm. about. And she gives in to the deception Adam seems to be standing right there and does nothing about it. So he gives up his God-given authority, submits to and follows Eve, who submits to and follows the serpent. And then all of it is a, is a refusal of submitting to the authority of God, the ultimate authority. Mm -hmm. So you see this, this reversal of the creation order that we call the fall that introduces sin into the world that 
sends everything out of control and is the the cause of the brokenness we see in our world today. What I'm not saying, in case you're hearing that, is that because Eve was deceived, because women are more easily deceived, it's not what I'm saying, our lives are all messed up with sin. It's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that what we see in the, the account of the fall is a reversal of God's good created order of authority and of leadership. Mm-hmm. Adam is attributed with original sin. In the New Testament, when Paul talks about the, the father of humanity who, who has given us all, it has caused all of us to be born into sin, it's Adam. He's held responsible. Yeah. Eve is not mentioned there, though Eve was deceived first. And so, so Adam had an, a, a, a responsibility of leadership and authority that he gave up. And because of that, we have sin. So after the fall, God is explaining the ramifications of this. So he speaks to the serpent and we get the Proto-Evangelion or the first gospel where he says there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. The serpent will bruise the the heel of the offspring of the woman. So we get a, a page three of our Bible, a forecasting of Jesus of the gospel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So my question is the curse of sin that Eve would bear children and it would be painful and that Adam would have to work the ground and it would be painful. Or is the curse of sin that these things they were already going to do are now going to be painful? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So w- was there a distinction in roles within the context of marriage between husband and wife, man and woman prior to the fall? Or do these distinctions come after the fall? I would say, and I would argue that the the curses are the pain that's going to now come with the things you are already going to do. Yeah. Because before before the fall, they were given the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. So there was going to be reproduction and there was going to be childbearing and they were given the command to work the garden, mm-hmm. to toil and to labor and, and to, to produce organically out of the things that God had made. Those things were already there before the fall. And now because of sin, those things are difficult. They're painful. They're complicated. They're broken. And there's strife between man and woman in this, this woman desiring to be over the man, but the man ruling in a domineering way. Um, what do you see? Are, are you... Are you quoting Genesis three sixteen right there mm-hmm. with what you just said? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he yeah. shall rule over you. Yeah, there's a lot of different uh, interpretations that. of that. The I think I think here it's a a different type of authority than what God originally intended. I think the rule here that that man will now have over the wife, not in a good way. This is a result of sin, is a domineering one, a a wrong one. And, and I think, I think we see this kind of occur in a couple different ways. It's either like passive, like deferring mm-hmm. authority to the woman. So you see that in like the story of Abraham, for example, when Sarah's like, take my slave and maybe we'll have a son through her. And Abraham's like, all right, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think that was Abraham's God given role as like the husband. Yeah. Um, so, so it could be that, or what we see in Genesis four, uh, Lamech, he takes a bunch of wives 
and he treats them as property and, and he has this domineering rule over women and i think that's wrong as did well. you take a bunch of wives i think he, didn't you just have two i mean I, I'm, I'm not saying it's like yeah two's more than two's <laughs> okay. a double that came amount. out wrong i'm like yeah man it was just two <laughs> maybe he killed a bunch of people okay um i mean uh, he's got a quite the poetic speech that he gives about how yeah, awesome, he, how is, awesome but, he is yeah, yeah so. um you know kane killed his thousands i've killed my tens yeah, of thousands yeah. or whatever um so so that's that second part of it and then you know your desire shall be contrary to your husband i think that there is that the the authority usurping that took place in the first sin and the deception of the serpent is going to continue in this power struggle between male and man and woman in the context of marriage but you can extend that into other places as well so i think those things are a result of sin and a result of the fall that then are redeemed through the gospel okay and so creation equality and value distinction and roles fall the distinction in those roles are highlighted by the curse of sin now and how that's going to distort and thwart this good order that God has had us put in place. Redemption. Jesus comes in. He, he lives a life we couldn't live perfectly submitting to the father, perfectly loving his neighbor, perfectly interacting with both men and women. Then he goes to the cross and he dies for the sin of the world. He takes our, our horrible abuses of authority he, he takes our, our rejection of submission. He takes our sin on the cross. He pays the penalty for it. He dies death for it. He rises from the grave. And then anyone who comes to him in faith is given new life, forgiveness of their sins, and, and not just new life in the future one day, but a new way of living now. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is re- reversing the curse of sin and creating a new humanity that is is live that should be living like God's original created order but in an even better way because we mm-hmm. look forward to a day when sin will not be a problem. So the the life of the Christian now is an a, a attempt, is a striving for holiness, is a striving for living as God would have us, knowing that we're already saved from our sin, our, etern- our, our future is secure in Christ, and now in the present, we work out our salvation and our sanctification, our growing in Christ-likeness by re- repenting from our sin and being obedient and all those kinds of things. And so... If Jesus is restoring things back to the way they should be, then we go back to our creation order. Is the restoration of humanity through the gospel, does that mean there's no distinction between male and female? Or are we going back to the original distinctions yet before there was sin, mm-hmm. right? And so the kind of the the hallmark verse for the egalitarian position is Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, male or female, mm-hmm. but all are one in Christ. And so that's kind of the, if, if, is that what Jesus is restoring us all to is this, this, this breakdown of social classes, this breakdown of economic classes, this breakdown of ethnic classes. This also break- getting rid of binary structures. Yeah. And then, yeah, getting, getting rid of, there's no Jew, there's no Greek. We're all one in Christ. And so there's no male, there's no female. We're all one in Christ. You said that you would use that verse to argue for complementarianism. So I'm going to kick it back to you. How would you understand that verse in the context of the redemption that Christ brings to support the complementarian view that that there's no male or female, all are one in Christ does not mean there's no male or female roles. Mm -hmm. Contextually is how I would support it to, to read our Bible contextually. And so verses are a gift. 
Versus came into existence around 500 years ago, mm -hmm. and they're great for finding spots like Galatians 3.28. The problem with that is what people do is they take verses and rip them out of context and cherry pick. And yeah. so instead of reading a book for its motif as a whole and understanding what Paul's message is, Paul's message is, and what he's going against, is that there's people that have come into the church, these Judaizers and leaders of the circumcision party, which those two words should never be together, are coming in. <laughs> are the, they're coming in essentially saying, not essentially saying, they're coming in saying, this is still what you need to do in order to be justified, in order to be declared righteous before God. And what Paul is saying is he's unpacking in this letter, very explicitly clear that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Mm -hmm. And even in that context, he's talking about justification. Yeah. And then so to understand Paul's message there is it's not about church leadership. It's not about church structure. It's not about getting rid of binary categories. It's about that all through and in Christ are justified equally yeah. by the atonement of Christ. Yeah. And then therefore reconciled to God and in God's family in the world, there are either those that are in Christ or those that are out of Christ. Mm -hmm. I think that's more of what Paul is addressing. Sure. Yeah. And in Christ is the supremacy over all things. And so the reason I would use this verse to support my complementarian view is what Paul is showing is where our ultimate allegiance is, that we are in Christ, a part of the family of God, that we are sons and daughters first and foremost. And that happens because of what Christ has done in our faith in him. That allegiance rises above even the other areas that culture is telling us that first and foremost, you are your ethnicity. First mm -hmm. and foremost, you are this, or you are that, or you are slave, or you are free. In the first century, that was true. The highest thing you could be as a Roman citizen. Mm -hmm. But Paul's like, no, you're in Christ. That's the greatest thing about you. Yeah. E even above male or female, the greatest thing above you is that you're in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so I would use that to support more of yeah. a complementarian view. Yeah. So if there's two halves of our definitions, equality and value, and then the question is equality or distinction in roles, this verse actually speaks to the first half, that we're equal in salvation. We're equal in justification, yeah. that there's no, it's there's not a different way of salvation for the Jew and for the Greek. There's not a different path of salvation for the slave or the free, and there's not a different path of salvation for male and female, all one and united yeah. to Christ in Christ. So the, the other thing with that, Brad, is that none of those things set me over and above anyone else. Mm-hmm. And, and so the confusing thing around roles is because our culture has told us so much that your role equals your worth, your skin color can equal your worth. All of these things equal your worth, right? No, <laughs> like that is a really hideous, horrible and evil thing to tell someone. Because if I tell you that your role equals your worth in life, what happens if you lose your role? Mm -hmm. If, if your identity is in the role of being a pastor, what if we get fired? If your identity is a woman who's a CEO of a company and that's giving you your worth in life, what if you lose that job? Do you lose your worth too? Right. And so a, a, equating worth within a role is a really awful thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Let's keep cruising here. So creation order, fall distorts that order. Christ comes to redeem that. The rest of the New Testament, the letters in the New Testament are explaining the gospel, explaining our salvation, and then teaching us how that works out in our life, right? How, how we live out the, the gospel of salvation. And we have these three letters. They're called the pastoral epistles that Paul writes to pastors, two of them to Timothy, one to Titus. And in it, we get instructions and, and guidance for how to operate within the context of the church. So the, 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 this, the new creation that we look forward to is manifested here and now on earth through the church. Mm -hmm. And so 
what does what does life in the context of this church look like if we are living in a way that points back to and then forward to this creation order? And that's where Paul works out the gospel as he teaches Timothy. This is how how, how you order and structure worship and life in the church. And this is where we get one of kind of our key passages on uh, this issue. And this is in First Timothy 2, verse 11. It says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay, so we'll keep reading here in a second, but let's just let everyone take that in and take a deep breath. <laughs> just let me say this real quick. Okay. I want to be sensitive and gracious to our listeners that have a different view. I, I don't want to seem apologetic for the view that we hold. Yeah. And, and sometimes it can almost be like, man, just reading that makes you so unsettled. But why does it make you so unsettled? Our natural tendency, and Keller says something along these lines, I'm going to butcher it. But we bring all of our cultural preferences to the word of mm -hmm. God and see how we can get the word of God to line up with what culture tells us in our preferences. We need to let the word of God come to us. Yeah. We're we're at in our current culture moment and 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 let the word of god shape yeah, us and shape our culture otherwise what we start to do is create god in our own image and we don't have god at all we have a worldview that we like and we, we've we've adapted god to come in and 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 align with our worldview yeah when you have a god that only agrees with you and never disagrees with you i would question do you have a god at all mm -hmm. but if you have areas that like somehow bother you and you're wrestling you're like i don't like that but no matter what i'm not god and i don't understand why god would do that that's a good thing yeah. it's it's bringing your life into the submission of what god's word says yeah absolutely so. yeah and i think uh, i'll stop apologizing then um no i think you're <laughs> it wasn't absolutely. a rebuke it was just no i think you're absolutely right and 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 though maybe the reason i'm like take a breath is because of the word submissive which you can't get away from an authority structure you can't egalitarians have an authority structure totally. everyone in life including an atheist has an authority structure yeah. the yeah. question is what is your authority right and ultimately all of us submit to god so if you have a problem with submission you have a problem with God. <laughs> More than that, oftentimes we equate submission with weakness. Mm -hmm. And yet the most powerful, strong thing that has ever happened in human history was a man submitting. Philippians 2. Yeah. A man humbling himself and submitting to the will of the Father to the point of death on a cross. Yeah. Like that's, that's this beautiful picture of submission that from our worldly perspective looks weak. But from God's perspective, like that's power. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I think we have allowed culture to redefine or, or give us a preconceived notion about what submissiveness is and what it looks like. This like weak, frail, passive, like I'm going to lay over and, and like that's not submission according to scripture. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, you're right. So Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise, <laughs> exercise, exercise, <laughs> exercise authority over a man. Authoritative teaching, which in the context of the letter of First Timothy, is the primary function of an elder. And so what I think Paul is restricting here is that women uh, become or are elders, overseers who are overseeing and leading and shepherding the church through the authoritative teaching of God's word. Verse 13, for or because. So why? The reason Paul says this, why is he saying this? He doesn't go on to say that because of the Artemis temple in Ephesus, because of this super specific local cultural thing that is only happening here and now and will change in 2000 years. No, he roots it in creation. He says for because Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So you have this creation order. 
This Paul, is how Paul's rooting his argument in creation. He is. He's rooting his argument in creation pre-fall. <laughs> Adam was formed first. That happened before the fall. Then Eve. There's no, there's no ordering here of who's better. There's no ordering here of who's the better human, the better sex. The No, it's just a statement of fact. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And then the reversal of that was that the woman was deceived first by the serpent and then Adam. And, and then you have, you have transgression, you have sin, you have the fall. And so the, the God, Adam, Eve creation order that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, in Genesis 3, the serpent creation, Eve, Adam, God reversal that we see, Paul's saying here in a very short sentence, Adam was forced form first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So, and then verse 15, and this was a lot, we won't talk about all of it, but yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's not to say that women can only be saved if they have children, <laughs> uh, but that the curse of sin on the childbearing of women I think this is saying you might have a different view on this. I don't think it matters as much that she will be saved through that. Like there's there's salvation from the the curse of sin for the woman. But I don't have anything to add to that. I just want to ask this: Do you believe that there are two separate things that Paul is talking about here? I do not per, uh, permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. Are those two separate things or one and the same thing? It sounded like your definition a minute ago was one and the same thing. Yeah. I think it's one of the same thing. I think it's a type of teaching because elsewhere we see women teach. I don't think Paul is restricting women from teaching ever. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think he's restricting women from discipleship. I don't think he's restricting women from utilizing their teaching gifts. Elsewhere, when Paul talks about gifts, he doesn't make a distinction between who has, who can or can't have certain types of gifts. So I don't think he's restricting women from teaching, period. I think he's restricting women from a, a type of teaching that is reserved for an office in the church, the office of elder, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And our English is not the most helpful here. It, you know, it says, I do not permit women to teach or to exercise authority over a man. The Greek's a little fuzzier than that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in English, we have to work that out. Um, and a lot of translations do this a little bit differently, but I think it's referring to a type of teaching, one thing, the thing that elders are primarily tasked with. Okay. Do you agree? I do. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Let me ask this because we've been going for a while and we need to wrap this up. <laughs> How do you think culture has influenced this and what do you see the downside in the future being to this influence? Yeah. Because essentially the argument is now that you can actually be loving and not let women be pastors. Right. You're robbing women of an opportunity. You're robbing other women in the church of the opportunity of them being in that role. And so... It's really unloving for you, Brad Leibolt, to not let women be a pastor. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. how much does culture influence this? What is the downside? All of that. Yeah. I think culture has influenced it tremendously. I think that for the vast majority of church history, this issue has not, this has not been an issue. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, almost timed with the rise of feminism and sexual revolution and those kinds of things, you see this emerge w within scholarship. I I'm sure that it has been talked about before that. I don't want to make a, a, a sure statement on that, but I don't think church fathers in the first century were talking about this much, you know, if at all. So I think culture has influenced this tremendously. And I think that is the crux of this issue. I said earlier that this is a divide issue, but the hermeneutic that gets you there is a die for issue. Because, in my humble opinion, mm -hmm. 
I think that getting to an egalitarian position, to get to an egalitarian position, you have to do hermeneutical gymnastics that end up being unfaithful to the biblical text. Okay. Um, I have some quotes from smart people that I think are helpful. Okay. This is from Ligon Duncan. The denial of complementarianism undermines the church's practical embrace of the authority of scripture. The authority of scripture is a die for issue. Okay. That's in that category. Mm -hmm. Thus, eventually and inevitably harming the church's witness to the gospel. That's a big deal. Yeah. The gymnastics required to get from, I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man in the Bible to, I do allow a woman to teach and to exercise authority over a man and the actual practice of the local church are devastating to the functional authority of the scripture and the life of the people Dang. of God. So I think the egalitarian position erodes the authority of scripture because what he just said, the gymnastics you have to do to get from, I do not permit to, I do permit. If you start applying that to other issues and to other topics and to other areas of the church, you will erode the authority of scripture to the point where culture and my personal experience become the authority. And I think we're seeing that happen. So I'll do another one here. This is from Wayne Grudem. So Wayne Grudem wrote a book titled Evangelical Feminism, A New Path to Liberalism, question mark. So a new path to liberalism is the question. That's the question he's exploring in this book. In the introduction to the book, he writes an open letter to his egalitarian friends. So Wayne Grudem has friends, theologians, scholars, these people that he knows who are egalitarian. And so he basically poses the question at the, in the introduction in this, in this letter, if I know so many of you, so he argues in the book that evangelical feminism and egalitarianism is in fact the new path towards liberalism, which is an abandonment of the authority of scripture. In his introductory letter, he says, how can I argue from this if I know so many of you that are egalitarian, but not liberal? You've, you've, you've made the egalitarian move, but you haven't gone fully into liberalism. He's like, how can I argue that and so he responds to that question in this letter in the introduction. And he says, I do so, I make this argument, because of the nature of the arguments used by evangelical feminists, arguments that I explained in some detail in the following pages. I realize that a person can adopt one of these arguments and not move any further than that single step down the path to liberalism for the rest of his life. Many of these leaders have done just that. But I think the reason they have not moved further toward liberalism is that they have not followed the implications of the kind of argument they are using and have not taken it into other areas of their convictions. However, others who follow them will do so. Francis Schaeffer warned years ago that the first generation of Christians who lead the church astray doctrinally change only one key point in their doctrinal position and change nothing else. So it can seem for a time that the change is not too harmful, but their followers and disciples in the next generation will take the logic of their arguments much further and will advocate much more extensive kinds of error. Dude, that gave me chills. I think that this is happening in a regular, predictable way in evangelical feminism, and I have sought to document that in this book. Yeah, it gives me chills too because I agree with him and because I see it. <laughs> and the enemy is in, uh, you know, is He's a deceiver is a deceiver who comes as an angel of light. And if you, it, it's a slow drip. It is. Yeah. And, and if you do it all at once, then people go, whoa, like that's a lot. But yeah. if you can slowly do it over a generation. Yeah. Yeah. And so, 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 so we're, I think, so I, I'm not sure when this book was written by Grudem. Francis Schaefer, he's from a while ago. I think we're, what I'm, what, 
again, humble opinion, based on observation, we are in between that first generation that just took one small step and that next generation that's pushing it further. Mm -hmm. Because you and I know people who are egalitarian and that's it. And, and, and they're, they're holding to Orthodox Christianity in all their areas. But you and I also know people that were egalitarian and are now open and affirming and are now liberal and have abandoned the authority of scripture. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it is that far of a reach to say that egalitarianism has and is opening the door to further, further straying from orthodox historical true Christianity. Because eroding scripture will do that. Because you have to let culture and your personal experience and feelings influence you so much to make scripture say something that it's not saying. Mm -hmm. And that hermeneutic, that approach to interpreting the Bible, you start to apply that to other areas of scripture, and all of a sudden scripture is no longer the authority, mm -hmm. but I am. And how much like the enemy to convince you that culture is more loving than God and knows what would be better for society at large yeah. than what God's structure is. Totally. And so... And, and, and I want to be careful here to not say, so listeners, don't go around and every egalitarian you know is a heretic. And if you are egalitarian and you disagree with us, we're not necessarily saying you're a heretic. What we're challenging is how you got to that position. Mm -hmm. And is the approach to that position in, in full submission to the authority of scripture? Yeah. And if not, then we start using the H word <laughs> because that's a to die for issue. Yeah. I would also say this. There's also a lot that we haven't talked about that, oh, so that I think gives a great biblical argument for complementarianism. Sure. Like Jesus only appointed 12 apostles uh, that were all men. Mm -hmm. When one of them went astray after the resurrection, they appointed one more. They had every opportunity right there totally. to bring in a female and say, hey, it's all been overthrown. They appointed another male. Mm -hmm. In the entire Old Testament, there were only male priests that's not a position for female. Mm -hmm. Does that undermine women? Does it say that they have less value worth? No, it, it was a specific role mm -hmm. for someone that was only carried out in God's design by men. Yeah. And Jesus, who was counterculture in so many ways, didn't overthrow that. Yeah, and uh, we, 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 another thing, First Timothy 3, the qualifications for an elder. One of the qualifications in there for an elder is that they are the husband of one wife, and that they manage their household well. That's well, an argument that Dr. Gary Brashear says that it seems like no egalitarians are willing to address. Mm -hmm. That the biblical, the biblical qualifications for an elder mm -hmm. are speaking to the husband of one wife. And immediately after, you get biblical qualifications for a deacon that includes qualifications for women, for deaconesses. Mm -hmm. It says women likewise, and then it has a list of character qualifications for women who... Uh, who are deacons. If elders could also be women, why not include a similar line, literally a paragraph above mm -hmm. that? So th there's lots of arguments for that. I also want to say, I want to be fair here, uh, complementarianism has been abused. Mm -hmm. And there, there are, there are. well, let, let me say that maybe a little bit differently. There are extreme versions of complementarianism that I think uh, have abused authority and have mistreated women and have not empowered them to participate in ministry and discipleship and the life of the church in ways that I think scripture does permit and allow. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I would, I would, my question for you is how do we as complementarians encourage and empower women to be involved in ministry in a way that, that 
is true and faithful to scripture and the restrictions that are given for us, but then also allows women to thrive in the context of a complementarian church. Mm-hmm. Was that a question for me? Mm-hmm. You're the lead pastor. Yeah. Uh, can you ask? Well, actually, I think I can work with what you asked. How, do comp- how does a complementarian church empower women to be involved in ministry? Okay. First, I would say that in order to do it and do it well, we need to be consistent. Okay. So you have to be consistent. And so if you're saying that, that men can lead small groups, but women cannot, then the question becomes, does that mean that every one of your small group leaders is an elder? And it's like, no, I don't think that's consistent. Mm -hmm. Because what you're saying is that you don't have to be an elder to lead a small group. You just have to be a man to lead a small group. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's consistent. And so we let women lead and co-lead small groups. Mm -hmm. And so I think just across the board, as you're looking at various things your church does, you need to ask, is this something that we're only saying men can do or only saying, or, or, or saying, is this something that only elders can do? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Consistency, okay. I think, is okay. a way to love women well in a yes. complementarian church. Uh, next, honor women, talk to women, <laughs> address women, look women in the eye and yeah, treat women with with dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. Even when you find yourself in situations uh, like in seminary and there's one woman who's in that class, go up to her and say that you're grateful that she's uh, growing in her formal studies of theology and wish more women in the church would do that. Mm-hmm. And it's incredible that she has taken the leap to act in such a way that's courageous to be in a classroom because I'm currently in that role. We have one woman in our class, mm-hmm. it's 15 other dudes in there and just want to honor her and let her know like, man, that, that's a big step of courage. Yeah. You know, I guess maybe last I would say is providing opportunities mm-hmm. for them to grow in their teaching mm-hmm. and exercising and using their gifts yeah. would be a really big one, but resourcing them, you know, Hey, how can we better equip or train you? Hey, is there a way that we can get you into seminary? Hey, is there a way that we can help grow you theologically? I want our women to have at Gospel Community Church, I want our women to be like theological beasts, like mm-hmm. robust in their theology, being able to understand and defend it and stuff like that. I think that goes, or that happens by the local church creating ways that we're training women. For instance, a gospel leadership cohort in, in places like that, where we say, hey, let's not just train men, but we open that up to six men mm-hmm. and six women of 28 weeks of learning yeah. to develop women theologically. Yeah. It's bit us in the butt, to be honest, Brad, because some women came in not even knowing what complementarianism was and egalitarian, and that, and that was a position of our church. Mm-hmm. And so by us attempting to theologically grow and develop women and equip them, we've also explained to them that there's these views and this is what our church holds. And they're like, well, I don't like this. And so, <laughs> yeah. but that's a risk that we have to be willing to take yeah. in order to, I think, equip, train, teach, and help our women grow. Yeah. Yeah, uh, like I said earlier, there's no distinction in the New Testament between who's gifted. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no distinction even between using those gifts. There, in Ephesians four, there's no distinction. Uh, you know, God has given gifts of leaders to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say equip the male saints for the work of the ministry, but everyone in the church is participating in ministry in some way, and, and it's our job as leaders to equip them in that. And so, yeah, it, like the consistency, what we think God's word is restricting, is the office of elder mm-hmm. and then anything that we would only let an elder do uh, or only have an elder do that is that authoritative like mm-hmm. you know teaching leading overseeing but everything else it's also important i think to note that in as in anything we should empower and uh 
have women lead in ways that they're qualified for and gifted mm-hmm. in, you know, not to just say, oh, because you're a woman or because you're a man, you can do this thing. It's like, no, like there's got to be some equipping. There's got to be some qualifications. There's got to be some giftedness, you know, those kinds totally. of things. But to not neglect or prevent women from utilizing those or being equipped in those ways in yeah. a lot of different contexts in your church, yeah. I think is really important. Let me share a brief story. I, I sat down it. with a woman once who was leaving our church over this issue. Mm-hmm. And she asked me a question. She said, Rick, don't you think that you are hindering the kingdom of God by not placing gifted, dynamic, educated women in the pulpit who are more gifted, dynamic, and educated than you are to preach and teach God's word? And I was as gently as I could trying to turn the question around on her. And I said, did you hear what the question was that you just asked me? Is the kingdom of God hindered by someone's giftings, by their education, by all of those things, their dynamic personality, or is it hindered by not preaching and teaching the gospel? And, and uh, in her mind, the advancement of the kingdom was more relying upon education, a female, mm-hmm. dynamic, great teacher, communicator, those types of things, not upon the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I tried to explain to her, the kingdom of God only advances through the proclamation of the gospel. Mm-hmm. We could have an absolute bonehead in the pulpit preaching the gospel, or we could have someone in the pulpit who's the most gifted, dynamic, educated person of all time giving a motivational speech, which is stupid mm-hmm. and absolutely damning to people's souls. It leads to pride or despair. I'll take the bonehead that's going to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm like referring to myself as a bonehead, but I'm just saying I will take the person who's going to preach and teach the gospel. And what we need to put our trust in is that being the means that advances the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. There's a whole lot more we could say, and we probably opened some can of worms in there that we didn't even address well enough, you know, um, we try to make these short. This one we knew was going to be long. We could do a series of this on this topic. Um, and so we're, we're trying to do our best we can to, cover it in broad strokes, but then recognize that there's a lot that could be left unsaid. I'd say to summarize, we believe God knows better than we do and that he's communicated that to us in scripture. And so we're doing our best to submit to his word and what it says. And we believe his word says that men and women are equal in value, dignity, worth, justification, salvation, yet they're in God's good created order. There's a distinction between roles in the church, the family, the home, and those should be celebrated and and honored because God knows better than we do. And mm-hmm. so um, we, we hope our church is a place where both men and women are loved, cared for, shepherded, equipped, empowered to, to lead and disciple and, and do the work of the ministry while holding to what we think God's word says about the, the role of men in the office of elder. So if you have questions, you can always reach out to the email in the show notes, just a few resources. So I said earlier, Greg Gilbert's book, Can Women Be Pastors? I would recommend. Kathy Keller wrote a little book as well, uh, the husband or the wife of the late Tim Keller, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, A Case for Gender Roles in Ministry. It's really good as well, written from a complementarian woman. There's a woman in Portland who we've utilized uh, to help teach our cohort before. She's awesome. Her name is Whitney Woolard. She has a blog, a really good article on there called Delighting in Authority, How to Create a Culture of Happy Complementarians. I would recommend um, checking out as well. Uh, if you're of the more nerdy type, the Pillar New Testament commentary on First Timothy written by Robert Yarborough, his handling of First Timothy 2, we're kind of both really enjoyed. And then 
a free commentary on Bible.org is Douglas Moo's handling of that text as well. And I think he does a really good job walking through it in a, in a pretty understandable way. So there's lots of resources out there, lots of stuff you can read, watch, listen to. At the end of the day, our authority is scripture. And so make sure you're submitting to that. But any concluding remarks? Yeah. Pastorally. That's good. Yeah, we should do that. I, I had an older woman who was leaving our church also over this issue. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, I said, have you felt valued, loved, and honored as a woman in this church? And she said, more than any other church I've ever been a part of. And, and I said, do you hear though that, that you're leaving the church because of this theological difference? And, and she said, yeah. Therefore, what I would say is this, you can have a theology of complementarianism and still be a jerk. Culture and the culture you create where women feel loved and valued, I think gives, will allow women to have an appreciation of the doctrine. But how we conduct ourselves, how we carry ourselves, how we treat, honor, and respect women is a thing that's going to be felt and experienced. And if it's experienced and felt well, I'm not saying that women won't leave, but even if they leave, they have to leave with the wrestle going, wait a minute, the theology they had, I disagree with, but yet I feel loved and honored. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge win that, that if someone can still leave and say, I just, I just can't get my mind wrapped around it, but they're leaving saying, I've never felt so loved and honored. I would say that's a yeah. win. Yeah. I would also say this, the most important people in my life are women. My wife, my daughters, my mom, all women. I'm a mama's boy. <laughs> Love women. And if my daughters came to me and said, dad, I want to be a pastor or dad, you know, people have asked, what would you do? Oh, I would do exactly what I have a conviction to do. I would shepherd my daughter well to understand what scripture says. But ultimately, I would want to ground my daughter in this and have her be grounded in this, that before and above anything else, you're a child and you're a child of God. That defines you. Therefore, you don't need to enter into this world or have this degree or have this job in order to have worth. You don't need to join the military. You don't need to do all of these things that maybe culture tells you to prove something. Mm -hmm. You have the freedom as a child of God now to enter into, into something without it being your God that is going to give you worth in life. You have a lot of freedom. You can go try that. Maybe you liked it. Maybe you didn't. You can move on. You're a child of God. Mm -hmm. That's never going to change. And so that's where I want to help my daughters grow and understand this is what's going to give you ultimate worth for all eternity, mm -hmm. not this position or role or something. Yeah, that's good. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone for sticking with us on a longer episode. Like I said, you got questions, shoot them our way. We'd love to answer those. Uh, something we're going to do at the end of this season is a Q&A episode. So if you have questions for us that you would like Rick and I to answer, they could be about the episodes we do. They could be about something different. They could be about our lives. <laughs> I guess anything's on the table. We just reserve the right to not answer it. You can email those to us. You can put them in reviews on like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube or wherever you listen to this or watch this and can communicate with us. And we'll collect all those questions throughout the season and then towards the end we'll do an episode just kind of working through those and answering them so i'm excited about that I like q a and would love to hear any questions you guys have so get those to us uh in whatever way works for you and uh we look forward to that yeah we'll be back for another episode in a couple weeks 